This is Homestead Gardening, a modern approach with your hosts, Kristen and Spencer, where we garden alongside Mother Nature, sprinkle in a touch of modern science, and put up the abundance. Kristen's Trial Garden is located in Houston, Texas. In addition to general horticulture knowledge, Kristen's decade of experience growing in the Gulf Coast will provide additional insight into navigating this climate. Spencer is growing her family's produce in California's Central Valley. She uses her one-acre urban homestead to help others bless their tables with homegrown, homemade food. We both work hard in our daily lives, just like you do, and this means we have little time to tend to our gardens. So how do we create a homestead garden that provides for our families without breaking our backs or the bank? Find out in this podcast as we share our modern approach to homestead gardening. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, this is part two on trap cropping. You want to make sure that you listen to that first episode because we've already introduced a ton of great strategies for you to utilize. Now, welcome to part two. Okay, so last time we talked about tackling- So many bugs. (laughs) Earwigs, flea beetles, uh, slugs, snails, cucumber beetles, um, squash bugs, squash fine borers, the list goes on, hornworms, aphids, um, yep. and we're continuing from there. So if yes. you just heard a bug that you want to trap, you want to get some help with, listen to the other episode. <laughs> All right. So Who's next? we covered a lot of bugs, yeah. but there <laughs> is still two more <laughs> that are total, like, I'm going to total geek out. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Garden <Go> nerd. <laughs> so the two that we've saved, I think, are good to save and devote more time to because they cause so much destruction. Japanese beetles and leaf-footed bugs slash stink bugs. I'm going to kind of group them together because the damage and the trap cropping is the same. Um, But these two bugs cause so much damage and the damage that they cause is to higher value crops usually. So not only are they do you, ruining do you, your food supply. Sorry, sorry do you ahead. have an example of a couple of those crops just so that I... So like for Japanese beetles, we'll get more into this, but on the East Coast, Japanese beetles are super bad for perennial crops, blackberries, okay. peach trees, like... Oh, I so have I'm, Japanese beetles or peach no, trees? No, the peach trees and, and, and yeah. blackberries. Those are, those, are my, those are my high value crops. Okay, now I'm on the exactly. same page. So I'm good. Exactly their higher value is what the harvest is worth and monetarily. And as far as what you've invested your time into, because they're perennial crops, um, the leaf footed bugs and stink bugs are going to be more of your average summer crops, but things like tomatoes are what most gardeners are, are gardening for. Like you want that juicy summer homegrown tomato and they're more emotional. So it's damaging in that regard as well. When I first started my Instagram account, I think it's almost been a year. Japanese beetles was one of the first deep dives into a pest that I really did. And that really got the response to that got me on the trajectory that is here. So I find it super interesting for that regard, as well as how diverse that this pest is. And so what you could do, what I found when I was researching all of this almost a year ago is that beetles thrive I told you I would get super nervous. Okay, no, no, I, I had this dumb grin on my face because I just looked up what the beetle looked like. I oh, have okay. a ton. I have a ton of these oh, okay. on my blackberries. They, they, 
ruined my life last year. I didn't even know it. You see, that's the thing. You, you have these bugs, you have this happening to you and you don't Everybody even know bugs. it, but yeah. I, I am known for my blackberry crop. Like I had this huge patch and these little buggers were on everything and they were so upsetting and they didn't seem like that big of a deal. So I left them alone, but like, I am, I'm glued to this part of the episode. I've got to know how to fix my yeah. problem. Okay. So let's back up. If you've never seen a Japanese beetle, it's small, probably like the size of a dime. Obviously it looks like a beetle. They're usually like a green iridescent color. If you're on the West coast, we have a variety of beetle that is not technically the Japanese beetle, which is an invasive species. What we have is a native species does the same exact damage. So I tend to refer to them the same, um, but it is, you might have the same pest, but it's a different color. So beetles thrive in weather that is 80 to 95 degrees approximately, right? And the beetle season is about three to four weeks for their above ground life cycle. So when they can come in, they come in hot and they get out of control very quickly. The way the beetle life cycle works is they're above ground to mate and then they will go back into your soil. So you may also notice them as grubs in your soil. Um, and then they overwinter in the soil to emerge the following spring and redo their life cycle and ruin your life as a gardener. Um, <laughs> you're rocking my world. Okay. I'm yeah. just going to tell a quick story. My yeah. dogs, my dogs are the best, but they're terrors. And we've had, uh, if you've see me on Instagram talking about my gopher problem. We have gophers for the first time. We've always had moles. We do have grubs in our soil, uh, June bugs, all kinds of different things, right? May start out that way. Um, the dogs have been going in the far back, coincidentally, right by the blackberry patch, digging holes and eating things. And they're coming with like their snouts are all dirty and they're eating grubs. They're fighting over them. I, I, I know what's happening now. I know what those grubs are. I know what's happening. This is killing me. This is killing me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that the dogs are handling some pest control for me, but like, this is yeah. so weird that I didn't, yeah. it's so weird that I didn't know that I had a problem. <laughs> yeah. What I think is the key piece of information there, which like I said, okay, total, I'm totally geeky out <laughs> over this, the 80 to 95 degrees. So if you look at it, the map of the United States, obviously that 80 to 95 temperature range is going to vary. So for me in California, central California, not on the coastline, that 85 to 95 degree weather corresponds with my first flush of roses. So I lose my entire first flush. It is trash. I'm not going to harvest it at all to the beetles. When you start to move more towards the central I'm using my hands and nobody the, can the, the, see the middle, me. But the middle, the, the, chunk the, of the, middle of the United States. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it tends to be more damaging to corn. And then as you go further towards the East coast, it becomes more fruity perennial crops like the blackberries and the peaches. And that has to do with that 80 to 95 degree temperature and what is blooming at the time the beetles are going to merge in your area. Right. Exactly. And so for Houston, uh, for example, my blackberries are always on time around the end of April to early May. Um, they're going to be blooming kind of in that April timeframe, but then May is where we're going to have that, um, good, good fruit that's ripening in that heat that you're talking about. And so that's, that's our timeframe. You know, I definitely see mm -hmm. 
what you're talking about there. And because we're, even though we're in the middle of the country, because we're coastal, we hit that East coast, that fruity perennial problem is what we're having. Yeah. And for us, I think my first blush of roses is about that same time. It's usually like the time between Easter and mother's day in there. You're exactly right. Blackberries for us in our area hit a little later. Um, And I don't know if that's probably just variety specific is what grows well here. But for us, by the time blackberries are hitting beetle seasons over. Yeah. So, um, in our area, it is variety related. So my big patch that grows really, really well is the earliest crop of the season um, where I have this problem. On my other blackberries, I have a Brazos variety that shows up a month later. And that makes okay. a huge difference. One month is right. a yes. big difference huge. from a three to four week life cycle here. Yes. So yes, just uh, if you if you know this problem is happening to you too, and you don't want to trap crop or do any sort of companion planting, you just want success uh, and not touch anything, just get a different variety. Um, you're welcome yeah. to reach out and ask for some help on that. Yeah. Uh, with that, if you don't want a trap crop, Japanese beetles are one of those pests that you, I don't want to say you have to, but you need to handpick. Um, I mentioned in the last episode, a real quick snippet of passive picking these beetles, which we're going to talk about as we get into the, the trap crops are scientifically attracted to the color white, light pink. So what I would do is take a shallow white bucket and fill it with, if you have chickens, fill it with water and a little bit of molasses to make it sticky. So they don't just like land to drink and fly out. Um, if not uh, dish soap is the common recommendation in water, but I love to feed these to my chickens. So I don't want to feed them dish soap, obviously. Um, which chickens go absolutely insane nuts for Japanese beetles. (laughs) Um, so if you don't want to trap crop, you can manually control the population because the way their life cycle is set up, it's only three weeks long. If you go out there in the morning, they're going to be cold and they don't really move and they are extremely easy to handpick. You can knock them into the bucket, dispose of them however you want. Um, I've seen people do a shop back which I find really interesting because they have large, like you, you will see large quantities of these beetles. Um, what, what I love manual about control. Yeah. What I love about gardeners, I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump in there with this shop back yeah. what I love about gardeners is you have such a range of personalities showing up <laughs> as gardeners and boy, those, uh, construction type men, they are all about that shop back. So many problems are solved by a shop back, right? This is one of them. Go ahead. Sorry about that. That's funny. Yeah, no, you're good. So, uh, manual control is, is key here. And so when we talk about manual control for this, even if you're trap cropping, you still want to exercise manual control because of the way their beetle life cycle works. So every beetle that you remove now is a beetle that you're not going to face its offspring next year when we're talking about perennial crops like blackberries and peaches, the biggest dent you can put in your own population is with your own manual, manual control. Yeah. And, and it, this is all making so much sense. You know, if they're attracted to white to light pink, I'm just going to go back real, back real quick on that comment. Um, all of your blackberries yeah. are going to have white and sometimes light pink blooms. Yep. Same with your peaches. We have peaches. That, yep. that pink color. This may be a little bit darker, but at the end of the day, it's, there's some light touches to that. 
And then same with your roses. Most of most roses yeah, are pink. That's what mine are. actually. Um, and so I have seen these strangely only in my pink roses. I, I don't have that many. I don't like pink. So <laughs> I have other colors of roses in my garden, but the pink ones are the most beautiful and they are always infested with these silly beetles. You're really killing me right now. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I didn't know I had this. Yeah. <laughs> it's right in front of my so, face. Yeah. So the, the white and light pink roses. So that is what I have. The whole front of my house is decked out in David Austin roses. It's ombre. It's beautiful. It is what I live for as like an ornamental garden. David Austin roses the garden are the dreams. premium. Oh yeah. Like I'm so bougie. And, and so guess, bougie. and guess which part of the country can't grow them right here oh, in, in the swamps me. of Houston. We can't grow the darn David Austin's. We're not dry yeah, enough. I, I am obsessed. But anyways, so they're all white, light pink. They just get devoured. After they're done with the roses, they will move on to my white anemones, which are a hard hit crop um, for beetles. And it's that that perfect timing. They're blooming as towards the end of the beetle season. And I even, when we were prepping for this episode, I went back through my phone from last year and was looking at all of the pictures and videos that I had taken of beetles. At the end of beetle season, they even started to go towards squash blossoms, which I know isn't their color of choice, but I did have to handpick, I mean, a handful uh, from squash blossoms. But with that being said, last year was the first year that I would have had a baby and I did not handpick anything and the population was out of control. So let that speak to they're going to keep going towards the next thing if you're not feeding them and getting rid of them. Absolutely. They, they're clearly advantageous characters. Yeah. They're not going to slow down. If you, if they lose their food, they're just going to find the next better fit or, you know, good enough. Thing. Exactly. That's interesting. Yep. Yep. So what do we do about it? Um, this is a hard situation because there are so many things that they can affect, uh, which is why they're so hard to battle depending on what your priority crop is. So I know flower farmers, I would probably give you a different answer than like a blackberry farmer or peaches. If peaches and blackberries are perennial crops that you're trying to protect, I would tell you to use white light colored roses as a trap crop. Is that probably the most expensive trap crop I've ever recommended? Yes, but you've invested years into your blackberries and your peaches it's something that's hard to replace plant-wise since it's not an annual and the amount, like if you had to buy that fruit from a grocery store, that's expensive. So I see that being beneficial in that regard. You also have to keep in mind when you're selecting a trap crop for these beetles, the temperature thing that we talked about earlier, what is going to bloom? Because if you select something that's not going to be in bloom in the same time, it's, it's not going to help you. Um, I was just about to mention that there's yeah. so many other, you might be thinking, oh, I don't want a rose, but I have, I, this flower's white and this flower's light pink. Well, it won't matter if it's not yep. blooming at the right time. And we know we both in our own gardens know this, of course. And then, you know, science says, science agrees with us. Those yeah. roses are going to bloom at the right time for you. So mm -hmm. pick, pick the right thing. If you're having trouble with real estate, if you don't have space for all of the, these things that we're talking about, you can buy a vining rose. That's okay yep. too. They're still going to bloom at the yep. same time and you can just trellis that and get it out of the, out of your way. And you're going to have yep. a lot more flowers that way too. Yeah. Uh, white zinnias 
borage comes in a white variety, geraniums, which is what I'm going to trial this year, uh, evening primrose, four o'clock flowers, white marigolds, even grapevines. Those are all examples of white. And let me be very clear, make sure you're selecting the white slash light pink varieties of all these flowers because they come in a variety of colors. Those are all options for you based on, and then you just have to edit your seed starting time, especially if you're doing like zinnias, make sure you're starting them, which you could do that indoors to make sure that they'll be in bloom when those beetles show up. And so then as a, as a warm season gardener, yeah, zinnias, zinnias is probably your easiest and cheapest option if you're able to get that yes. blooming time yeah. just right. Um, so yeah. And, and white zinnias are beautiful. Most people don't have them, but they're actually pretty gorgeous. Yeah. So then the follow-up question I'm always asked is, well, what if I want to protect my roses? <laughs> um, <laughs> rose farmers, gardeners like me, I would love to have that first flush. Um, I and trialing this year. So we could do a follow-up. If you want to follow me on Instagram to see how it turns out, I have already started geraniums, um, which as a seed Costco's was on the more expensive end and it was harder to source. Um, so I'm interested to see how they turn out. I was unsure of the bloom time. So I planted them at the same time as I did my other trap crops for my squash bugs just so I could remember and kind of keep track of it. Um, but the roses just got forced into dormancy like a week ago. So I'm hopeful that it will work out well. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes for you. So we'll definitely in later episodes, if we have any lingering questions like this, did it work? Did it not? Yeah. <laughs> we'll answer. We'll we'll get that. We'll get that somewhere yeah. in a later episode. I want that to serve as encouragement to listeners too. Like, Obviously, I'm very nerdy about these bugs and the trap crop information. It just is so interesting to me, but I'm still trialing too. Like there's so much of this science that has not been studied because the studies are from commercial ag and how it applies to them. And then we're interpreting that information is our modern approach to homestead gardening, right? So don't be afraid to try is what I would say. Even if you're, you're unsure, just try it. We're, we're all here to learn, you know, and, and if everybody knew the answers, they'd already be known. We wouldn't, right. we wouldn't still be doing studies and tests and all these different things um, commercially. Now, Texas is kind of interesting. Texas A&M and Texas, uh, the Agricultural Extension Office is thought to know all this information and post information. They actually don't. So think too, if the information isn't out there, it doesn't mean you can't find it. It might be difficult. Um, but part of the reason why it's, good if you if you try things out and learn on your own is because you have a motivation you have a reason to yeah. learn if a study isn't out there if it's not being conducted number one it's expensive somebody has to mm -hmm. run it um, or volunteer to do it which is unlikely but places like AM um, where they do do these trials first of all they need years of research they can't just have one season and then right. make a statement so it's going to take years, maybe 10 to collect all the data that they need to put out a formal report. Number one, number two, somebody has to have a motivation for that. What's their mm -hmm. motivation? Are they going to get paid for that? Is somebody, you know, somebody sponsoring it? What's happening there? And if there's what I've noticed with articles, um, online from the extension office, somebody has to volunteer to do that. 
people in the extension office don't get paid to write these articles. There has to be a professor that just at, at the university that decides to put something out or um, somebody professional has to make these decisions and then they have to be approved. So there's a lot of missing information on the internet in those professional mm-hmm. settings, which is why if you're navigating this information in blogs, in, in back channels, trying to learn, you're going to find conflicting information. You're going to find um, confusing information or missing information because it's just not done. So when Spencer's listing all of these different options for the Japanese beetles, white borage and roses and zinnias and geraniums and all these different things, try a few. Don't just rely on one thing. If you're not sure on the bloom time for your area, try a few things. The white borage is going to give you an advantage somewhere else in the garden anyways. All these things are going to provide you value somewhere else. So do your own testing, have a little fun. All right. Don't beat yourself up. It doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Know that we are all struggling with these dang I just, beetles. I just realized well. I like ended this on a lecture note. But that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <Just have fun. laughs> yes. So with that being said, Kristen, okay. So why don't you tell me about your experience with the leaf-footed bugs? Because okay. second to Japanese beetles, they're probably number two as things that piss off gardeners. <laughs> Leaf bugs are a real nuisance. First of all, I'm going to mention there is a good bug with a nymph that looks so similar to the leaf-footed bug nymph, and it's difficult to navigate that pest. I've squished some good bugs in my day because I just can't tell. And I mentioned my eyesight's going, right. like, it's not my fault, all right? <laughs> it's my eyes. No. Um, so one trick that I, that's almost always right. Sometimes the nymphs or the earlier life cycles of bugs hang out in little groupings because they were laid together. So they're, they're near by each other and they hang out in a little pack, but a lot of bad bugs like to hang out in packs. So when you're trap cropping, they're going to be in a pack anyways, they're attracted to that crop. So that really helps you navigate that bug. But if you don't know if you have a trap crop, which the story is about accidental trap crops, that that all my stories have been that way so far. Um, in this case, I didn't know I had trap crops in my garden and they were being successful um, and that I was finding these bugs in little packs as a result. Um, and so one thing I learned about leaf-footed bugs, their nymphs always travel in packs, whereas the assassin bug, which has a nymph that looks almost identical, does not. They are solitary. And so that's going to be a dead giveaway of which one you have, if you have a good bug or bad bug on those nymphs. The nymphs and the adults also hang out in packs together too. So if you see an adult and there's there's a nymph nearby and they're like red, they're super obvious, squish those two, get rid of those two um, because they're They're about to turn into adults. They're so gross. gross. They're really fast. They know you're coming from a mile away. Um, So I have a trick for that too. So my story, Um, the way to tackle the leaf-footed bugs is, uh, according to the internet, and this is my case too, is with giant sunflowers. So if you have this problem, they're really mobile. They're going to go wherever they want. But if you can plant giant sunflowers just outside of their garden on the perimeter, there's a chance that they're going to be more attracted to those. They really like them. They like the, the smell or something about them. There's It's a chance they're going to be more attracted to those, especially those big heads, than, which is why I said giant sunflowers, than any of your other crops that they're going to mess with. And in my garden, they mess with everything. Um, so they're really attracted to those sunflowers. 
the good thing about sunflowers is that you can succession plant. You can start them as early as possible. Once those heads start to form, that's what they're attracted to. Even if there's just seeds, even if the flower's gone, they'll hang out. They might ruin a few of your um, seeds as a result, but you can still harvest. You can still use those giant sunflower seeds and either replant or eat, no problem. Um, but you can be able to find them and on those sunflowers. And then that's when you get to work. That's when you start managing them. Leafeta bugs can fly away. So my first way to attack those is to smack them down. So the first thing I do is smack the crud out of that sunflower and confuse them, have them drop. And either I take a boot to them right away and <laughs> usually try to uh, smack them over like a tarp. That way they, um, it's like a slick surface or something like that. You can do that or you can smack them into like some soapy water. It's not going to get them right away. You got to dunk them a few times, but you'll get them. Um, the nymphs are pretty fast. They like to just immediately drop off. They don't fly, but they will drop off themselves and start hiding. So you need to really attack those fast because once they're hiding, you're never going to find them there until they get back on their trap crop. Now, the internet has said something interesting um, as a two-part strategy. I recommend mm -hmm. just succession planting the sunflowers instead, but as a two-part strategy, you could try this. Giant sunflowers followed by sorghum. The internet says leafeta bugs like sorghum. In my experience, that is not true. My sorghum, I have widely um, talked about how pest-free my sorghum is. <laughs> I'm growing sugar drip. It's nothing special. It's an heirloom. Um, not, not special. It's not known to be more pest resistant or anything. Um, but just keep in mind, you can still try the strategy. You can get some great sorghum out of it, even if they don't get attacked. But the most important thing with these leaf footed bugs is to, once they're trapped, once they're on a crop, or if you see them anywhere, is to get them out of your garden. You need to destroy those little mothers because just <laughs> like these other pests we're talking about with quick life cycles, they have a fast life cycle and they reproduce like crazy. But my my big trick is that they do travel in packs. So you can be it's a good tip. sure that you're getting the right bug when they're all grouped together like that. Yeah, because the assassin bug that you mentioned, I believe is a natural predator for the leaf-footed bug, right? I don't know about that. Um, okay. I'll look that up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll have a little blurb at the end of this episode. We'll yeah. <laughs> find that up. Okay, so, so Kristen told me this scenario and I read the Alabama study that a lot of this information uh, is stemming from. So I want this to serve as encouragement to, to you and to listeners. If you've tried trap cropping and your first attempt wasn't successful to not give up because when we start to get more detailed into this and you do it every season, tweaking little things like the timing can make or break your success. So some things that I learned from that Alabama city. So I have seen leaf-footed bugs before. However, in our area, in our microclimate, they orchard hop. So they go from whatever nut. So they'd go like almonds, pistachios, pomegranates, and that would be their season worth of food, which is why if you're in a climate like mine, that is more suited to growing trees you might not have seen them in your backyard garden. So last year was the first time I saw one and I had to Google it what it was because they are disgusting. 
And I had no idea what it was. Turns out my next door neighbor's pomegranate tree is infested. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and yeah. we have, um, we have three pecan trees and they've only produced a successful crop one time because every other year the leaf footed bugs have their number. Yeah. And it's really disappointing because you still produce, your tree is still producing a nut, but the inside is damaged. You can't eat it. Right. It's ruined. Right. Which would be the same with the pomegranates and the almonds, pistachios. So I have not personally experienced them as far as ravaging my garden or like I, I have not tried growing sorghum yet. So I did take a lot of notes from this Alabama study and I'm hoping that they'll help you because I think nailing in the timing and the placement can be your key to success, especially since you said that the sunflowers work really well. So the key takeaway that I took from this article was that leaf-footed bugs are intensified during drought conditions. Which, which we were pros at this year. That was what we exactly, did best, right? <laughs> exactly. I read that and I was like, oh yeah, that's half of her problem. Like poor yeah. Kristen, she can't control that. <laughs> well, uh, funny enough, a, a lot of the areas they were attracted to, I don't know if this is relevant at all, um, but my sorghum was really well taken care of this year, right? Healthiest soil. We talked about how healthy soil in the last episode mm-hmm. probably uh, means a pest-free environment for your garden or a reduced pest pressure. Um, the sorghum was in a really healthy condition. The sunflowers were, and always are in the most devastating part of my yard there, which they should be. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great place for them. Yeah. Yeah. I I throw them out and I go, good luck. I don't care Mm -hmm. about you. Um, and that's where all of my pests gathered was in this really difficult section of the yard, um, where I had a few straggler plants and these sunflowers. So that I wonder, I don't know. I wonder if the pests, uh, those particular pests are even just more attracted to those difficult conditions. I don't know. It, it This study definitely can, seems like it was. And I wrote yeah. down, so I'm going to read from my notes here. Um, that Alabama study found a 60% reduction in leaf-footed bugs compared to tomatoes grown without trap crops under drought conditions, specifically mm. in the late season. Oh, yep, and that's exactly when they, sh- when they yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So late in the summer and what that translated to for the farmers in this study, because like we said earlier, most of these trap cropping studies are applied to commercial agriculture, but what that led to them, it translated to eliminating three insecticide applications. So I do believe that. Yes, I, I really do think so. So I, but I really do believe that you have the right trap crops in the sunflowers and the sorghum. It's just making a few tweaks as far as placement and timing that will help. Like I, I would say, try it again. I wouldn't say that a result, like what you had would be, you know, a reason to throw in the towel for someone. No, that's great. Um, so my sorghum was in a trial mode last year and it's moving into a, a true crop that I want to take care of this year. So it sounds like my key to success is going to be this This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to plant my true crop inside my good garden. Um, and then I'm going to plant my trap sorghum out in the outskirts, in that more difficult condition section where I don't really water and take care of. And I think that's going to give me the success that I'm looking for. I think I'm going to sacrifice partial and then take care of the rest. And I have one more little fact for you that might help you. So with this study, they definitely found that two rows of the sunflower sorghum like pairing essentially Mm -hmm. was better than one. So, and then 
a follow-up question I had for you, which you already answered was, did you succession plant the sunflowers? I, I didn't that time. I usually do oh, every okay. year and it was just a, it was a, a really difficult year and the seeds were not germinating correctly. Um, we were just so dry so fast. Um, right. so, so yes, I, I'm a huge fan of the succession plant. I think that is the smartest strategy, especially for any of your crops, any of your mm-hmm. crops, not just traps. Um, but I like the idea of the double row. So we're talking about four total rows, sunflower, mm-hmm. sorghum, sunflower, sorghum. Okay. Yep. So okay. If, if you were trying to, to re-mimic this study, so they had that on the perimeter that like, like you were saying, away from your garden, then on the outside of your garden, which in would be similar how we were talking about applying the blue Hubbard squash on the outskirts of the garden, they did another row of sunflower sorghum. And then as a variable in the study, they even interplanted rows of sunflower sorghum in between tomatoes. Oh. So they had I mean, a ton. They of really went for it. Sorghum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if we're getting three, you know, eliminating three insecticide applications, like we're in. Um, but what I was going to say is the key detail that I think will help you. And I wrote this down because, like I said, I've never grown sorghum, so I had to Google slash. I'm still not entirely sure what this means, but I think you will. <laughs> okay. So the leaf-footed bugs are only attracted to the sorghum when it's in the panicles are in milk stage. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So I had no idea what that means. So, so after pollination, we have the flowering and then the kernel of the sorghum expands and that contains a milky fluid. Did I say it right? Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that either if I hadn't grown it. It's just an observational thing. Um, yeah. So I had no idea, but so that's, so, so that's interesting too. That's okay. Yeah. So that's good to know. That's good. The timing really is everything. Um, sorghum is really interesting too, because it grows through like continuously. So you, you harvest your seeds and it starts again with a new stock and it just keeps on going until it's killed at the end of the season. So I promised that I was going to come back to this assassin bug situation and, okay. and, <laughs> I, and I have to, I have to answer this because I will actually forget. Um, it will feed on caterpillars, the larvae of those leaf beetles. I'm guessing they mean leaf-footed bugs and sawflies and adults and nymphs of other true bugs. So it is actually probably a predator um, yes, definitely of these that. others, which is which is really great. But in the nymph stage, yeah. it wouldn't be. So just keep in mind, like the nymphs do look similar and one's going to gotcha. be traveling alone. The other one's traveling in a pack. Super, you don't have to yeah. Figure out anything else about them. But it is a beneficial insect. Like you definitely want those. Yeah. Assassin bugs hanging And they're around. just as gross looking. I mean, they're, yeah. they're horrifying, but everything's <laughs> going to be okay. Right. Um, so I do want to point out too, I kind of mentioned this, I think in the last episode or this one, I don't remember this leaf footed trap plant scenario also applies to stink bugs. Yep. So if you are facing those, just make sure yeah. you have that in your back pocket as well. Have you ever heard of Brinks? Like, like a Brinks system? No. <laughs> it's like, no. Uh, like a, okay, I might butcher this word, a refractometer that you measure, like I'm getting super plant nerdy, that you measure the, it's called the Brinks content of the leaf. But there's, so leaf-footed bugs are a sap-sucking insect. I just bought one. I haven't opened the box yet. (laughs) So I'm going to geek out, but there's a certain Brinks level that sap sucking insects will no longer be attracted to your plant, but we have covered 
so many bugs over these two episodes. I hope, I hope you're still with us in my bug glory because I am just geeking out. So excited over here. If, if, if between the two episodes, listeners, if you have not come up with one aha moment, I've come up with several. All right. And I'm part of the episode. Right? <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe. So if you've not come up with one aha moment, message us. Yes. We want to help you out. We, we want you to be inspired by this, yeah. right? but hopefully you were inspired today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, if you have not listened to part one, please go listen to part one right now. Um, do you have anything to share with our listeners today? Try crap grubs. Just do it. You're not going to regret it. You're not going to yes, regret it. Yes, try it. You have to try it. Worst case scenario, you trap nothing and you get a beautiful crop. Yes. Hello. Yes. Can't lose. <laughs> If you want to reach out to us, ask questions, you know, if you've been listening for a while, I always have Q&A Fridays. That question box is up. Take advantage of it. Why not? You can ask specific questions about your situation and I share them with other gardeners so that everybody learns together. You can find me at Turn Your Head and Scoff on Instagram and I'm going to have all the information in the episode description. I also have highlights saved on my Instagram, thefarmandthetable.co. Uh, with all of the trap plant questions that people in the past have asked. So if you're looking for something immediately, you can always thumb through the highlights. And if you can't find what you're looking for, send me a DM. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.